You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Triple R's radiotherapy program, your Sunday morning degustation menu where all things medical and psychological are chopped, plated up, tasted, swallowed, digested, analysed and metabolised so that you, dear listener, won't have to chew any of the grisly bits for yourself. I'm Dr Anabolics, and just to let you know, there are three psychiatrists in the studio this morning, but only two couches, so if you hear any fighting when the music stops, you'll know what's happening. But it's all in fun till someone gets hurt, and Kent is here to make sure we play nicely. Speaking of playing nicely, radiotherapy has been on air now for 20-odd years, believe it or not, and we three here today have known each other for most of that time. You could say that we have a relationship. This raises a lot of important questions. Are we always honest with each other? Are there things we don't know about each other? Do we have secrets we've never shared? Has anyone actually checked SK's qualifications? All very good questions. Well, today, the ever-truthful McZiff is going to look at the subject of honesty in long-term relationships. After seeing the film 45 years, it's made him think, which is always a good sign. Also here with us this morning is the lovely lanky SK. He's going to talk about the Cassandra syndrome and how time travel is depicted in movies, particularly those that show people coming back from the future with superior intellect and knowledge. Could SK be one of these people? It would explain the DeLorean in the car park. All will be revealed. And for our studio guests we have this morning, we have two wonderful people from a new organisation, Birth from, for Humankind, a free service dedicated to helping women with social and cultural disadvantage negotiate pregnancy and childbirth. All this and much more right through to 11 o'clock, so stay with us. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Well, good morning, Dr SK. Oh, morning. <laughs> I love, love your introductions. I like the uh, gastrointestinal metaphor this morning, but I think you should have uh, followed it through to its logical conclusion <laughs> and uh, illustrated how we dispose of these topics that we digest. Uh, 20-odd years of radiotherapy. It is. Really, it yeah. Is. And it's we still scary. haven't got a contract on commercial radio. <laughs> yeah. says a lot, I'm, I'm just it? hanging out still. You never yeah. know. You never know. Well, welcome anyway. And what about you, Mixiv? How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. And uh, it's lovely to see you. And you are, you are absolutely firing up anabolics uh, i think this new role as hostess of our show it's it's it suits you to a t really is it i'm um, just i'm just glowing in the role is it <laughs> i think you're basking hear that 3rw hear that gosh okay well we're going to move right along today to start with our fabulous guests and introduce our um them this morning in the studio we have two wonderful people from an organization called birth for humankind i got that right you do uh, welcome to first of all to Malai uh, Lord and no, sorry Malai Swan Swan sorry and Carly Lord how rude of me Golly welcome both girls how are you Great thank you so much for having us in uh, Malai perhaps I'll start with you because you're um, the head of the organisation Tell us a little bit about how Birth for Humankind came to be and what it does So we've been in existence for just over two years And it started um, when I was a new doula And my background's in community work And I had met the young women social worker from the Royal Women's, Amanda Stiles And kind of said to her, look, if you've got any young women who you need support I'd love to provide some support as a volunteer And I was referred Carly Oh, Carly, sitting who's sitting next to you. <laughs> That's right. Wow. And um, so I supported her through the birth of her son, which I'm sure she'll tell you a little bit about soon. But um, And then had the idea, I was like, I'm sure there are plenty of doulas who would love to do this work and a lot of young women and other women in need who would also really benefit from that support. Now, what actually is a doula? Let's start with the basics because a lot of people won't be familiar with that term. Uh-huh. Good. It, yeah, it's a it's a strange term, um, and one that people are starting to become familiar with. But basically, it's a trained birth companion or a trained birth attendant, right. uh, and it started, as far as I know, in the seventies in the states because of the the lack of continuity of care and you know some really good quality support for women in the maternal health system. So, mm. doulas started stepping in to provide that quality care and support that was missing in hospitals um, from obstetric care. Now, how would that be different to a midwife? 
Yeah, so a midwife is a medical role and they really are taking care of all of the medical aspects of the birth, whereas a doula has knowledge around birth and has knowledge of natural birth and has knowledge of, you know, what happens in medical processes and interventions, but is really there to provide physical support, emotional support and practical support and education. So we, our role is to inform the women about what choices are available and then to basically support them to make their own choices and provide emotional and practical support. And so why would you say that this is, you know, 2016, we're in a Western country, why do why did this is a support role necessary for the people you work with? What's what's missing, do you feel, sometimes in, in, the, in the lives of the people giving birth? I wish it wasn't necessary, but I think what happens is, you know, that sort of the typical hospital care at the moment is, you know, a lot of women go into hospital, they don't know who they're going to get as a midwife. The midwives are often run off their feet and don't have the time to really spend with the woman and provide the kind of care and support that she might need, particularly emotionally. There are some fantastic midwives. It's not that we're you know, saying that midwives aren't doing their job properly, but it's really the system that's often failing women. So it's like a, almost like a companion person following someone through, shepherding someone through the process. That's right. And being, would, does it have a little bit of an adv- advocacy role? Or? We do advocate um, where we see that there's a need and sometimes it's needed sometimes it's not needed. I mean, we're we're hoping to do some broader advocacy in the longer term. So we've got some research goals and some advocacy goals to see some shifts in birth culture and the maternal health system. But yeah, it really is that support. You know, our benefit is we come in and meet the woman during the pregnancy. We work with her throughout the pregnancy and then at the birth, at the whole birth, so we don't have to do shifts. Right. And then we provide some support after the birth as well. Fantastic. Well, well, Carla, you were a person who was going through that. What was it like from your perspective when you met um, Maylai? Um, well, much like a lot of people who I'm sure are listening, I had no idea what a doula was um, or what they did. And sort of as I started to navigate the system that Maylai just described, I you know, sort of quickly found that I wasn't equipped to sort of deal with this on my own and I really needed someone to support me and guide me through that and be by my side who had that knowledge um, and had that time to give to me and to support me through that journey. How old were you when you met Melon? Uh, I was 19, so I was a First baby, one. your first baby? Yes, yeah, yeah. And and what, from your perspective, what was the most useful uh, aspect of the role that she played for you? What did you find helpful? Uh, so much, but just to have someone at the birth who not only supported me in a time where I was very, very vulnerable um, and really needed that help and that support, um, but supported my partner as well, you know, because I think that then a lot of the pressure to support the woman emotionally gets put on the partner or whoever else is in attendance. Mm. Um, And so it was really nice to have that cohesion between, you know, the midwives and the obstetricians who are looking after me physically um, and Maylai and my partner who were there looking after me emotionally. So you said cohesion. So from your perspective, did did those three people, those three roles work well together did it gel well together from your perspective yeah yeah it was an amazing experience to have all of those bases covered and do you, looking back would you recommend um you know someone having a doula to other people is it something you felt that, that other people would benefit from uh immensely and it's why i'm so involved in the organization now and something that i definitely want to engage with people in and you know, really spread awareness because I believe there is, like Melai described, a real lack in our in our system and in our culture. And you know, there is a lot of time pressures and time constraints on health professionals. And I believe that doulas stand to make a big difference and to really step in and help bring those two together. Now just um, the term doula. Uh, it's Greek originally, isn't it? Uh, <clears throat> and, and I wonder if it's what was the cultural role of doulas and how long have they been around? Uh, I I don't really so I'm not sure. In t- I, from what I know, doula was a word that was chosen. Um, in the 70s in the states to represent this role that women were stepping into fill which is really an old role this is what women have been doing you know i would say that what we now see as a doula was the traditional midwife really in in you know so many cultures all throughout history and it's just over time that's been medicalized and 
that role has kind of disappeared. So in a way, it's a you know re-emergence of that traditional childcare, uh, childbirth support. And then how <clears throat> how many doulas are there? Oh, that is a good question. I haven't researched. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it's a growing number in Melbourne. What did someone made a guess recently? Oh, I wouldn't even know if there'd be a couple of hundred, maybe, but there's not mm. so many. So, so what's the process of someone becoming, if, if someone wants to do this? That is a good question too. So there are a couple of really excellent um, mm. doula training programs in Melbourne. One, Dyla Doula, that I did my training with, uh, run by a beautiful woman called Sundare Felix, and they're actually now offering a scholarship place for a bicultural doula to train with them for free and then become part of the Birth for Humankind volunteer team to support women biculturally and bilingually. And there's also Rhea Dempsey, who is amazing uh, birth attendant, trainer and birth attendant herself, and she's also supported our program. Could I ask whether you've met any opposition from the obstetricians in all of this, you know, feeling that perhaps their role is somewhat threatened by the presence of a support person or uh, alternatively, you know, them stepping back from what support they may have done now thinking that there's somebody else to do this for them. How have the obstetricians that uh, both of you uh, encountered dealt with the doula process? Um, mostly, mostly we work alongside midwives, um, also because the women that we support are mostly birthing in the public hospital system. Um, so there's obstetricians are mostly in the... So say if a woman has a private obstetrician in the private hospital system. Um, so I can probably speak more to what's happening in our work with <coughs> midwives, which we've found... I know there's that idea that some people think, oh, you know, there's a bit of opposition or that the doula's going to step in and try to take over what the midwife does. That hasn't been our experience. Our experience has mostly been that midwives love having our doulas there. We only get positive feedback. And even better, we're getting a lot of midwives and student midwives coming to volunteer with us as doulas. Uh, and are they going to be <clears throat> they're moonlighting with your organisation at some stage, you reckon, are they? Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we actually, and we visited the uh, Latrobe Midwifery Program staff mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and by the end of the meeting, all of the, you know, the, um, the course leaders were sitting there going, oh, maybe... Maybe we want to volunteer. Mm, that's a one because you're yeah. working with people who are at a disadvantage in some way, often, aren't you? Refugee women, and who are the groups you look after? That's right. Maybe Carly would like to speak to that. Um, so we support a lot of young mums, um, and sort of some of the work that I've been involved with at Birth for Humankind is getting our childbirth education program off the ground, um, and supporting you know. Well, creating programs essentially that are specifically tailored to young women and are, for example, using language that young women can relate to Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of thing. And Mel, I can probably elaborate a little bit more about some of our other client groups. Yeah, so we also work... um, Our eligibility criteria is very broad. Um, So, you know, any woman who's financially disadvantaged. uh, And we also then specifically work with asylum seekers, refugees, young women. It's often a crossover between the two. Um, But they're just the areas that have been in our previous experience and our expertise. So that's Mm -hmm. why we've started there, but opening it up to... Is that because some of your volunteers are bilingual? Um, Not at this stage. So when we first started, my background has been working in the asylum seeker sector and also working in the youth sector. And we also had another woman who was a counsellor at Foundation House, um, which is a a counselling service for refugees and asylum seekers. So we already had a lot of contacts and a lot of knowledge in that area. So it was kind of a natural area for us to branch into to begin. I was just wondering... In psychiatry, we're one of the areas where we see a lot of problems is in the postnatal period, the difficulties for women dealing with a, a young baby, and where women come to pregnancy delivery and they are socially disadvantaged, where they have a lack of support, the risk of postnatal depression, the risk of ongoing emotional distress is very considerable and can in fact last for a long time. And sadly, we not infrequently see people who carry this distress with them for years and years. With the doula program, how long are you able to stay involved with the mothers for? At the moment, it's we don't offer 
a long postnatal service. So it's usually only for a few visits after the birth. But one of our focus areas is connecting women into appropriate referrals so that they receive that professional support in those areas if they're needed. So we develop relationships with other service agencies that specifically provide that support and make sure that the women are linked in. And that said, it's also our hope and there's research around it that women who are better supported during the pregnancy and the birth hopefully that lowers their risk of postnatal depression i don't think there's any doubt about that i think we would all agree that that is so central so terribly important yeah Mm. so who supports you guys i mean birth is usually full of joy and wonderment and it's a great thing to be part of every now and again it goes wrong every now and again there are problems do you have people who support you supervise you you know back you up how does that work how you get your you know dose of care yeah for our, i mean that's one of our central tenets as well obviously this is the kind of care we provide we acknowledge how important that is so for all of our volunteer doulas we have a professional midwife in the role of doula coordinator and supervisor okay. so she provides really high quality one-to-one support yeah. um we're so fortunate. Glenis Jansen Frank, she was the childbirth education manager at the Royal Women's for many years and then set up the Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies program in Hume and managed that for six and a half years. So lots of work with asylum seekers and refugees and young mums. So she's our doula support person. Fantastic. And we also provide a lot of professional development for our doulas. Fantastic. Mm. And Kelly, how's your little boy going? He's doing exceptionally well and I can definitely, you know, attribute a lot of that to the support that I received um, through the prenatal period and, you know, the support that I received from Melai. And your partner would say the same thing, Did that, that your partner feel comfortable about the, the situation they were in? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, You know, we debriefed, obviously, afterwards and he just thought it was so amazing to have another person in the room who was there guiding us and supporting us and you know someone to have the hard discussions with yeah. and to bring up topics that we didn't think of ourselves and to prepare us for you know all different circumstances and situations and bring all of that knowledge to us so that we could really make informed decisions that we felt like we could be prepared as possible um, and that you know he could have someone you know it wasn't all on him mm. essentially it wasn't just I think that's so important because I think uh, men in that role feel very uh, at sea often very uncomfortable they're not they're not as well prepared they're not as um, they're not they're not feeling like they're in their comfort zone and yet they feel that it's all on them I think it's a wonderful thing to provide some I have another person in the room that you can just bounce ideas off and say is this okay is this what should be happening should I worry should I not and men often feel very traumatized by birth experiences because they don't feel like they've got that sort of backup so it's, it's fantastic well Thank you so much for coming in. I understand the week after this is Doula, International Doula Week, is that right? That's right, World Doula Week, 22nd to the 28th of March. Any big interesting things happening or is it online or how, how, do, how um, do people get to know more about that? Yeah, so you can Google World Doula Week and also for that we're running our first fundraising campaign in conjunction with World Doula Week and we're hoping to raise $15,000 to continue and to grow our support services and get more doulas working with women in the community. Because this is a free service for people like us asylum seekers and disadvantaged women and it's all privately funded by individual um, uh, philanthropic people yes that's right so we got some seed funding from Mm -hmm. private donors and um, yeah but now we're starting this community campaign to get the community on board and to grow our services well radiotherapy listeners are very motivated in this space and i'm sure you'll get some good response from them so thank you very much um, malai and carly for coming in and good luck with next week sorry Oh, the website. I'm sorry, I forgot to ask you about the website. What's the website? Yes, go ahead. I was like, I want to tell people where to go if they want to check out the campaign. Just barge in and and talk here. That's great. Um, It's www.birthforhumankind.org. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you very much. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to Radiotherapy on Triple R. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, and we've got McZiff now. McZiff, you saw a fabulous film that moved you a lot this week. No, well, a few weeks ago, um, 45 years. And uh, it's a marvellous story starring Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtney. So two very, very established British actors and uh, both at the, at the peak of their game. And... Uh, 
in the in the movie they've, they've been married for 45 years and uh are planning their anniversary party and uh I'm not going to spoil it for anybody mm. who wants to to go and see this, but it's not really uh, a spoiler type thing. Um, but you see them uh, in what appears to be um, well-established domestic bliss and uh, and harmony, and then a totally unexpected piece of news arrives, and uh, it's uh, it's a piece of news. It's sort of like. Uh, not throwing a pebble into the pond it's like throwing a, a small boulder into the pond and watching the, the ripples and what we see unfold is uh, is um, how a marriage of many years with all its habits and routines its weaknesses, its resiliences and fault lines deals with a now revealed past truth, uh, a secret and uh, it's, it's a film that's very strong on dialogue but uh, even stronger on the unsaid and uh, Rampling's face conveys uh, in a glimpse so much it's an, an, an actually to haunting effect mm-hmm. she is really quite outstanding the film's based on David Constantine's short story In Another Country and the film and the book are somewhat different in their emphasis but the theme of how the past impacts on the here and now is central to both uh, this short story and uh, and the film and uh, Andrew Haig the, the director was uh, was interviewed and he he's a very thoughtful guy and uh, um, I guess you'd have to be to to take up this short story and, and make it into the type of film that he has but he did speak in, in an interview about uh, the, what he considered to be the fragility of, of long term relationships mm-hmm. and uh, suggested that he suggested they're often a lot more tenuous than, than we might think or mm-hmm. might wish to believe mm-hmm. He spoke of how easily relationships can fall apart, and the notion that uh, that uh, a seemingly rock solid marriage can be blown away in uh, in a moment. Mm. Now, so in seeing this movie, um, which it, it's one of those films that actually really resonates with you, yeah. you you you're, you 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 can't really let it go, um, and it made me think of so many relationships that I've been privy to in. Uh, in therapy and consultations and uh, how withheld secrets can eat away at, uh, at individuals and couples so you, you can contrast that with this romanticized idealized notion of marriage that it's, uh, that it's a, a rock yeah. that it's, it's the bedrock of the very society in which we live based on fidelity and faithfulness truth and love and yet we, we humans were we're actually so very complicated and uh, there's often so much that's private, that's hidden, that's painful, risky, uh, that we would consider highly risky. And everybody has secrets they'll take with them to the grave. Absolutely. There's no such thing as a person who has told everybody everything. Every one of us has things that we won't tell anybody else. SK, you'd agree I, I, with well, that? I'll have to plead the fifth on that one, Mixit, but absolutely, yeah, there's, there's certain things which are clearly better left unsaid for the good of all concerned in everybody's lives. And that is a really interesting point. So, uh, and, and, and that, I think, is, is the fundamental debating point about uh, a film such as this. It, it can be so very hard to reveal painful truths. You know, the messy underbelly, the dark side of our lives, the debris, the detritus that we, uh, that we carry with us, um, that we, we, we sort of, we try to hide. And it's almost, um, it's almost as though we've got this, this dirty, smelly little cupboard that we push all of the crap into the the stuff the, the the stuff that makes us cringe the stuff that we really don't want to think about and we um, we, we hide that away um, some more than others so don't, don't you take the point McZiff that the whole of civilization and the maintenance of civilization is really based on our ability to lie effectively at some level because can you imagine the social disintegration and chaos that would reign planet wide if everybody told the truth all the time oh, I, I, it, it, it is unimaginable it's absolutely unimaginable. Um, and wasn't there um, a Jim Carrey film where he... Uh, absolutely. Yes, man. Yes, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and showed the consequences for that individual's life. But, you know, the ability to lie effectively, I think, is one of evolution's strongest contributions yes, to humankind. Yeah. There may be another word for it, which is manners. 
That's what yeah, our grandparents used to call it. Yeah. Well, well, and that's a really interesting point because this is a very mannered film. Mm. This mm. is a film that um, carries with it a very, very strong sense of uh, of English politeness and uh, um, respectfulness. And uh, so, whilst it's very painful in some respects, to let it all out, to see the light of day, the shock, distress, the guilt and the shame that uh, that emerges um, with unexpected revelation, uh, that can be even worse. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the problems that we have with, uh, with, with secrets. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't have secrets and sometimes these are best well kept as not all relationships are the same and frankly some relationships survive far better on uh, on keeping things hidden um uh you know there there are known knowns and there are no, uh, known unknowns with great respect to to Donald Rumsfeld um so i think that what's important is to think mm-hmm. and to think about the consequences of actions and and inaction, which is just as much an action as uh, as any other action, um, the problem is that uh, what we often see in relationships is that things are not spoken about because that seems like the easier course of action rather than perhaps the better course of action, sort of along the lines of better the devil you know. And um, people are often surprised by what their partners, and for that matter themselves, can tolerate or, or forgive. So in relation to this film, I, 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 I would... Well, it, it, it's a challenging film to go and see with your partner, particularly if you've got a deep, a, a deep dark secret, because the, the consequences are, um, are intense. <clears throat> the final scene of this film, which is a, a, a scene which has been criticised for lasting a little longer than it needs to, but uh, I must say I found it one of the most powerful movie scenes I've, I've seen in a long time. The camera lingers for quite some time on Charlotte Rampling's face, and it's very, very much to do with the choice of song. Oh. Uh, and uh, there's the, the music, the soundtrack for the film is really quite incredible as well because you've got this couple. He, I think, in the film is, is perhaps about... Uh, is, is in his late 70s and she's uh, a few years younger and so you've got this soundtrack of 60s music and, uh, and they've chosen what type of music they're going to be having for their 45 year um, their wedding anniversary and they're having this party mm-hmm. and the music is playing and they've got a band <clears throat> and uh, a backing track and it is so fascinating to 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 link the music to the final scene. I won't say any more, okay. but I would urge people to go and see this. Now, you were saying too that it made you think about secrecy and psychotherapy when you watched this as well. Now, of course, a psychotherapeutic relationship is not a loving relationship. It's not a two-sided open relationship. It's a one-sided therapeutic relationship, which is very, very different, and the boundaries are very, very different. But you often, you obviously were pondering on secrets that people hold and maybe reveal in psychotherapy or talk to their psychotherapist about? <coughs> how did that, how did that um, link with the Well, two ways. In, in two ways. <clears throat> if you are keeping secrets, if you're going along to, to have therapy and you are keeping a secret, then in, in essence, what's the point? Because the, the, the therapy space should be almost really of one mind that it, it's a sharing and if you're not going to be revealing it then you're, you're keeping it from yourself now there might be good reasons for that um, but look at the process that underlies that are you fearing being judged by the therapist is that really are you playing out with the therapist the very issue that is troubling you in your life i can't tell my partner or my children or whoever this because I fear the ramifications, and for that very reason, I'm not going to reveal it to my therapist. It's a two-edged sword, Mixif, because, uh, you know, often at times we will consciously hold back ourselves information from our patients. I mean, I don't do that much psychotherapy, to be honest, but, you know, at times I have made the judgment that it's best not to confront a patient with a particular truth because they're not psychologically prepared to handle it. So the openness, it's a bit of a one-way street, and we justify to ourselves the reasons for, uh, you know, not just not 
practising full disclosure with our patients at times, and that's a difficult line to tread. It's a very difficult line to tread, and, and sort of by extension, um, I happened to be interviewed once um, on uh, um, Radio National um, and uh, review, uh, unexpectedly revealed an aspect of myself that uh, I thought was perfectly reasonable and, and consistent with the, the, uh, the interview. And uh, lo and behold... Uh, a few months later, I received a letter from one of my very, very first psychotherapy patients, infuriated with this revelation of a light-hearted part of myself, um, mm. because the the therapy had really been quite tortured and difficult. Very, very, um, it was a painful therapy. It was there was a lot of very, very difficult stuff which uh, uh, which uh, my patient had to work through, and the patient was very, very upset that. Uh, in the the emotional intimacy of the therapeutic relationship, something which was quite important to me and which was fairly light-hearted had never been revealed to my patient and yet was being publicly revealed here. So it was as though uh, from the other direction, a secret of mine mm. then became revealed unexpectedly and with with not insignificant impact to my patients, to my former patient, of, of more than a decade earlier. So... It's interesting, isn't it? I, I'm interested also in your comment about the fragility of relationships because uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in a long-term, very loving relationship, which I value very highly, and, and I know you guys are too. So, But I'm very conscious... What, with your partner? <laughs> <laughs> He's, he, he, you know, he really values it. Thanks so much. No, but I know, I know myself, and I'm sure you guys have had times when you... <laughs> Those relate that relationship has been fragile, or something's gone very. You know, just slipped off one. You know, the bikes, the wheels fallen off one edge, off the cliff a little bit, or something. You think, cheapest creepers, I can understand how these things do go pear shaped. And luckily, we've been able to kind of do running repairs, and it, it's always managed to come back and be, you know, forged, not burnt, which is wonderful. But there are there is a fragility there inherent in any two person relationship, isn't there? That that you have to mind and tend and. Do you, do you have you experienced times like that when you thought, oh, now I understand how this can suddenly, you know? <clears throat> it, I think that's a very interesting point because I think that the strength of a relationship is not on how good things are going when things are going well, but how well you cope when things aren't. Mm -hmm. So how you come back from the rough times, uh, how you resolve conflict, how you work your way out of those difficult times, how you apologize, mm -hmm. how you genuinely apologize. And you you make reparation for the errors that you make, and I know that in um, in my long term relationship with uh, with Lady McZiff, um, uh, you know, um, I would probably be apologising nine ninety nine times for her one, but um, <laughs> but I'm a, I, I've become an expert apologiser. I've been very good at it, and I'm full of genuineness when when and 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 you I I think you learn more from accepting your errors, from recognising that, uh, <clears throat> that you perhaps haven't done things as well as you might. There was a lady on the drum last night who was talking about the couple who lost their son who was kidnapped and killed, in, and I've got their names gone out of my brain now, the, the high-profile uh, red ribbon campaign to find him, and then the guy just went to jail finally. So Daniel Morecambe? The Daniels, thank you very much, mm. Daniel Morecambe's parents. She was saying that Dan Daniel Morecambe's parents were the most inspiring couple that she'd ever met, and she quoted his father as saying that when I met his mother and married her, I promised for better and for worse. He said the 14 years we've just been through is the worst anything anyone can go through. And I'm still, we're still here. I thought that was a wonderful statement, mm. just which echoes what you just said. You know, yeah. awful things can happen, and how you manage them, how you come out of them, how you deal with them is a real statement about relationships, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. you recommend this movie? So I would, I would highly recommend this movie. I, I mean, I think if if you're the sort of person who um, uh, appreciates something other than than an action movie who is interested in relationships and how relationships work i i would unhesitatingly recommend this would you recommend it to people who might be having difficulties in their relationships mixing? i think it can be challenging and i think it can go you know it, it, it's the sort of thing that can actually go both ways um, it's uh, and and w which makes you wonder after the final scene w w well what's going to happen to this couple 
Mm. And uh, that's always in any movie that that ends um, where where you've got this, you know, it's like an an abstract piece of art. You know, you can play out what you think is going to happen, and and uh, and it's left open to conjecture. I I, I think it could work well. For couples who are uh, having difficulty, it could work badly, but it's how you then use the experience to then have the discussions. Do you, do you ever prescribe the viewing of a movie to uh, a patient that you're seeing because you think that they can learn something from it? I don't actually... No, I don't actually do that because I'm... It's very care- you've, you've got to be very careful about what you prescribe. Whether you're prescribing... A medication which has if you're prescribing a medication you're well informed of what the side effects might be if you're prescribing a, a film or a book or a play you don't necessarily know what the side effects might be so i'm quite careful i will often very very often talk with patients about the material they bring in and uh, and i use that as a as um well, that's, again, a canvas, using a canvas metaphor. That's something that you can then expand upon and you can discuss. But, no, I, I, I have a rule where I do not specifically recommend. We were, when we were in a child psychiatry training, we, we got taught about good enough parenting, the phrase good enough parenting. You didn't have to be perfect, you just have to be good enough. Is there such a thing as a good enough relationship? Is it okay to be in a good enough relationship? Is that, is that a workable concept? Well, I, th- I, I think that the, the good enough notion is is, uh, you know, they say, if you aim for the sky, you'll hit the trees. If you aim for the trees, you'll hit the ground. So we should all aspire to the best that's possible. Um, We're never going to achieve that. But in the acceptance of something that is good enough is, I think, invariably so much better than feeling as though we're failing um, because we're not perfect. Because none of us us are, are... are perfect and being a a good enough if you can actually look back in the latter years of your life and say you know what i really tried very hard i did the best that i could and i did a good enough job gee what more could you could you want i'd actually go further mcziff and and to say that a good enough relationship really is all that most of us can ultimately aspire to because if we were focused on perfection we'd all end our lives bitterly disappointed exactly that's right triple r not for everyone for anyone Well, welcome back to Radiotherapy on Triple R this Sunday morning. And uh, SK, you're going to tell us about the Cassandra syndrome, and I didn't know what that was, I have to admit. What's that? Well, actually, it's only when I saw the movie and heard this term referred to within the film that I looked it up and found out what it was. But uh, we'll get to the Cassandra syndrome, but okay. uh, the, the term was used actually within the film 12 Monkeys. Ah. And I was prompted to have a look at this film this week because of a piece I came across online uh, <laughs> which begins, uh, psychiatric facilities across the United States are at breaking point after the number of people claiming to be sent back from the future to stop Donald Trump (laughs) reached epidemic proportions. (laughs) Research has shown that every 10 minutes, someone claiming to be from the future and sent back to save humanity is being admitted to a hospital across the United States. That may be the onion talking, I'm not sure. (laughs) It actually, yeah, it's it's been debunked. I I tracked it down and uh, sourced it to a website called The News Hump, which is basically a a UK version of The Onion. (laughs) But, you know, they say the best lies are those that sound closest to uh, plausibility, and uh, and this one really did it for me. just a shocking state of affairs, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, but it art does uh, imitate life to to some extent. And and you know, one point of reality within this uh, comical story is that Donald Trump does actually wear a bulletproof vest to uh, his public oh, functions because really? there is a, a significant fear that he will be knocked off. That's one of the reasons you'll never see him button his jacket during presidential debates, for oh, example. Mm. Mm. Anyway, Twelve Monkeys is a, is a great film. Actually, it's one of those films that you can view uh, with at a number of different levels and it's one that on re-watching opens itself to a number of different uh, alternative explanations and in terms of uh, psychopathology and psychological thinking it's a movie that does have uh, great depth 
was released in 1995 and was directed by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python and Brazil fame and starred uh, Bruce Willis as uh, the protagonist James Cole who's sent back in time to find the source of a deadly plague that has all but eradicated humanity. Uh, data available in the future suggests that this virus was released at a certain place uh, in the world at a certain time and various people uh, are sent back to source uh, the release so that scientists in the future can come up with a cure for it and, and prevent disaster from happening. So uh, Bruce Willis is a convicted criminal in the future and he's sent back to uh, 1995 with this task and of course as soon as he lands in contemporary America he's immediately perceived as crazy when he's picked up and he's, his mission is uh, revealed to those around him and he's confined to one of those uh, beautifully Dickensian psychiatric institutions that we see quite a lot in uh, films about psychiatry in the US and I'm wondering whether we see them because they're so uh, stereotypical or I wonder whether we're seeing them because they actually mirror uh, reality in, in many cases and certainly some aspects of uh, psychiatric hospitals in film are not all that foreign from my own experience in uh, various aspects of the public system here in Australia. But... Uh, in hospital, Bruce Willis meets this deliciously manic character uh, played by Brad Pitt. And again, you could spend uh, half an hour talking about how the Brad Pitt character is a good depiction of uh, bipolar mania. Uh, Brad Pitt's uh, psychomotor agitated. He's running at a million miles an hour. He's pressured in his speech. He's talking the ear off a horse. He's making puns in his speech. He's got components of euphoria and irritability to his affect, to his underlying mood and he's also got a range of, uh, of paranoid beliefs uh, the fact that the Brad Pitt character in that film uh, is best seen as being bipolar is illustrated by the fact that later on in the film he's seen functioning at quite a high level. So he's had a, an episodic illness with a, a good period of intermorbid functioning that allows him to function as at a, at a high level. Mm. Now, Bruce Willis falls under the care of a psychiatrist in the film uh, who has an interest in Cassandra syndrome. And this is uh, where it comes in to, uh, to the film. Cassandra was a figure from uh, Greek mythology who was the daughter of Priam, king of Troy. And struck by her beauty, the, uh, the god Apollo uh, provided her with the gift of prophecy. And when Cassandra subsequently refused Apollo's romantic advances, he uh, tempered his uh, gift with a curse. Although he'd given her the gift of prophecy, he cursed her to have those around her never believe her prophecies. So when she foretold the fall of Troy, she was disbelieved. And the curse is that she could see the future but was powerless to alter the outcome of it. And that was uh, Bruce Willis's dilemma when he was sent back in time to try and find the origin of this virus. He knew he couldn't change the outcome. The future had already happened. Uh, but his mission was to find a sample of the virus, take it back into the future so that the scientists from his time could create a cure in, in the distant future. So cursed with the gift of prophecy and certainly uh, no one when he came back uh, believed him and he was incarcerated. I, I often wonder what would happen if, if the second coming did actually... Uh, happen in our time uh, you might think what the the future of somebody who uh, landed back and claimed to be the uh, the son of god might actually be and arguably you might foresee a psychiatric hospital in their future you're nodding sagely there mixif interesting <laughs> question interesting well question. i mean how many times have we in psychiatric institutions had that experience where somebody has claimed to be uh, to the, the Messiah. And, you know, interestingly, uh, the, the, the form that delusions take has altered over time to reflect the prevailing social concerns of the day. And certainly, a couple of hundred years ago, religious delusions were much more common than well, they well, are now. I mean, th they were still happening you know, 20, 30 years ago um, with, uh, with a great deal of frequency. I mean, they're very, they're, they're very different nowadays, but, but I certainly recall many mm. patients who, um, who came in, um, you know, Jesus looking, looking like Jesus and uh, absolutely, totally and utterly convinced um, and, uh, you know, not amenable to any form of reason. Well, you, you certainly still see them, and I, I see them a lot in the older group that I look after. Mm. But, you know, if you, f if you track delusions through history in the 90s, 
1950s when the Cold War was uh, at the forefront of people's minds, you know, common delusions involved the KGB and spy satellites, you know, new technologies that come out. Mm. Uh, then there was sort of cybernetic implants and with the advent of the internet, you know, people spying on me through the internet. Uh, I had a patient a couple of years ago who was convinced he was being spied on through via Facebook. Uh, on close questioning, he had no idea what Facebook actually was but knew that it was something related to the internet. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, now that we're seeing uh, sort of uh, ideas coming up in, in science fiction about, about time travel motifs, and there are a number of films in recent history that uh, take this conceit of somebody from the future coming back to, to avert uh, disaster. We've got the, the Terminator series of movies, of course, and particularly in the second Terminator film. Uh, Sarah Connor was in a psychiatric facility because nobody would believe her about uh, what the future held in relation to, uh, to Skynet. Mm. We've got other popular films recently, such as Source Code, which I think was a Ben Affleck film. Yeah. You know, even things like uh, Star Trek Four. you know, the one where they go <coughs> back and have Jake, to... Jake Gyllenhaal, I think. Jake Gyllenhaal, OK, yeah. OK. Yeah. In Star Trek, they go back to uh, modern-day San Francisco to find a whale for some reason, but... Uh, the finer details of the plot escape me. <laughs> 12 Monkeys has not only the Cassandra syndrome and a manic character, but it's also got a number of uh, filmic cliches in relation to psychiatry and psychiatrists in film. Of course, we have the female psychiatrist who, uh, on hearing Bruce Willis's story, falls in love with him. And uh, you must get sick and tired of, of that storyline in film, Anabolics. Oh, Prince of Tides, we've seen it all, haven't we? Going over the last, it's just, it's, it's boring and cliched. And yes, and it only seems to happen with female psychiatrists. And when it does happen, the female psychiatrist is seen as somehow noble, ennobled, <coughs> or being a better person as a result of having fallen in love with uh, their patient. I think Mr. Jones, the uh, mm. one where Lena Olin played a, a psychiatrist to oh, Richard Gere. Richard Gere. Yes, another another shocking example. Mm. Not only does the psychiatrist in Twelve Monkeys fall in love with uh, the Bruce Willis character, but she then goes on to develop what arguably are a couple of identifiable psychiatric syndromes herself. Mm. She begins to believe uh, Bruce Willis. And in psychiatric terminology, when you have somebody who's objectively reasonable and sane coming to believe the delusional beliefs of a third party, then you have a condition known as folly à deux, a shared delusional system. And we occasionally see this in psychiatry, usually in a setting where there's uh, a very powerful person within a relationship, whether it's a, a spouse in a marital dyad or a, a parent who becomes unwell psychiatrically and is in charge uh, of, a, of a young child under their care. The more uh, powerful person, when they become delusional, can influence the, the less powerful person to believe what they're saying mm. and that the treatment when that happens usually involves uh, the removal of the, the vulnerable person from the relationship to be able to, uh, to get a sense of perspective on, on reality once more. So arguably when you have a psychiatrist beginning to believe their patient's uh, delusional beliefs, you've got a folly à deux happening. We also see in 12 Monkeys a, a psychological phenomenon known as uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, Bruce Willis actually kidnaps uh, Madeline Stowe's psychiatrist uh, during a book signing and begins to uh, carter around the country as a virtual prisoner to, to further the ends of his project. And she not only comes to believe him, but she actively aids him in his course to complete his mission. So she becomes captive to his hostages. She modifies her own views to reflect the views of her captor. And Stockholm Syndrome is a very interesting uh, psychological phenomenon that uh, dates back to its first description in the 1970s where hostages in a bank hold-up in Stockholm began to, to actively collaborate with their captors to the extent that when they were released, when the hostages were released following this bank siege, they, uh, they went out to publicly defend their captors and some of them actually contributed to their defence fund when they went, went on trial. It's a very bizarre psychological dynamic when you think about it. But the evolutionary biologists have uh, had a look at Stockholm Syndrome and have traced it back to uh, almost prehistoric times where mankind was uh, essentially a, a, a group of warring tribes and uh, tribes would raid one another and cart off various members of the other tribe, usually vulnerable women with or without children to be used as, as breeding stock. And from a, 
an adaptive evolutionary perspective, there was a clear survival advantage for members of a tribe who had been kidnapped and who were otherwise going to be uh, living in fear of death in their new circumstances to perhaps rapidly take on or adopt the perspective of their captors because that is a course of action that is more likely to ensure their survival than any of the alternatives. In a perhaps attenuated form, do you see some of these dynamics still being played out amongst powerful people and their followers in the political sphere, in the cultural sphere? Oh, Stockholm Syndrome, certainly, and uh, it's, it's also been invoked to, asp- to explain such phenomenon as the, the battered wife syndrome, mm. you know, where, uh, you know, objectively women who are, are being physically, socially, sexually, emotionally abused, financially abused, uh, choose to stay in relationships. And I know that choice of language has been criticised because it's not really a choice, you know, it's often weighing up options that are less bad than some of the alternatives. Uh, but, you know, you'll, you'll occasionally see battered spouses make excuses for their partner's behaviour even when they, they come to, to receive help. And so, some of the common themes there are power and powerlessness, aren't they? That's the common theme. Yes, and learned helplessness. I mean, I, arguably we might be victims of Stockholm Syndrome when we uh, have to choose between one or other of the major political parties every four years or three and a half years, <coughs> as luck might have it. And, and I think we're going to be seeing an epidemic of this sort of thing when the IS phenomenon uh, does eventually recede with massive numbers of Yazidi women, for example, mm. and uh, other um, suppressed groups through the Middle East. Uh, their women are being used as, uh, as sex slaves. and uh, Monetized, and, clearly yeah, monetized. Yeah. And, uh, and, so w- and when the dust finally does settle, mm. we are going to have hundreds of thousands, if not more, deeply, deeply traumatized women and children who've been in, in uh, this sort of appalling situation. And hundreds of thousands of men for whom there is a special place in hell, if you ask me. Hmm. So yes, but it is it is a um, it's a it's a scary it's a scary situation for a lot of people in a powerlessness. Um, did you find it? It was a good movie. The second viewing was it a good movie? Oh, second, third, and fourth viewings. You've got multiple levels ah. on this film, and, and as McZiff mentioned earlier, it's one of those films that has a wonderfully open ending. You don't quite know what the future <laughs> then holds for society after the final scene of this film. Uh, the man who carries the virus, uh, Bruce Willis, fails to stop him from getting on a plane to go and spread it but when he takes his seat on the plane uh, he's, he's sat next to uh, a woman who's revealed to be one of the scientists from the future who sent Bruce Willis back uh, initially so we're left to speculate what the ultimate outcome might be it's it's a mind bender who are the monkeys by the way 12 monkeys are at they're an environmental activist group of whom Bruce Willis is the head and it was thought initially that release of monkeys carrying the virus was the uh, precipitant for the plague but that was uh, proved to be a red herring within the film I'm Let's go back and rewatch it. You've whetted my appetite. Well, we'll have to finish up. The uh, Einstein and Gogo brilliant scientists are champing at the bit for their show. And can I thank SK, McZiff, the wonderful Kent, and our lovely guests, Malai Swan and Carly Lord, for coming in today. We'll see you next week. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R 102.7. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.